I want to start a little series appropriately called Strength Made Perfect in Weakness. I don't even like that word, do you? Weakness. Yeah. Nobody wants to be weak, but it's right there. God says, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. It's from where Paul said in Corinthians 12, he says, God says, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. And we all have weaknesses. If you've ever been part of a family <laughs> and you've been on a long trip, there's a question you will have heard. It'll be asked by the children in a family on a long trip. It gets asked soon. It gets asked often. It gets asked with a whiny, obnoxious intensity that is designed to drive parents insane. And that question is, are we there yet? Are we there yet? And we suffer from what we call in our day destination impatience. Are we there yet? And Christians get it too with the Lord. Am I there yet? How long is this going to take? See, foolish parents, rookie parents, new parents will sometimes try to take care of this problem by giving a false assurance. Yeah, we're almost there. Hang on, just a little while longer. Almost. Now, I think that's a mistake. I would say to our kids when they were little, no, we're not almost there. We're nowhere near almost there. This is going to go on and on and on. So stop your whining or we'll never get there. We'll, we'll spend the rest of our lives driving each other crazy in his car. That's why our children are still in therapy. <coughs> well, that question, are we there yet? That's part of the human condition. It's also part of the spiritual life of people and the experience of God's people. It goes way, way back in the Bible. In fact, what I want to do in this message this morning is kind of tell you how that question got started in the Bible. Israel, just a little group of people that would become the children of God, were living in Egypt. They were sorely oppressed people, and we know oppression in our day. Well, they were slaves because of their ethnicity. So God came to this man named Moses and said in Exodus 3, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So the idea is that there is a God and creator of all things and that he actually sees human misery and he hears our cry for help and he's concerned about human flourishing and he's active and he will come down. Then he says, I'm going to lead you on a journey. That sounds kind of cool, and it sounds pretty simple. Just two parts. He's going to lead them up out of Egypt and bring them into the promised land, flowing with milk and honey. Well, it shouldn't take too long. If you're familiar with a map on your Bible or that part of the world, once they leave Egypt, it's a pretty short trek across the Sinai Peninsula, and that's what they have to cross to get to the promised land. It would take them by a direct route, shortest route, maybe two weeks. It was called the Via Maris, the way of the sea. It was a well-known road in the ancient world, but they don't take that road. That's what everybody would have expected. And then God goes on to say that when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the Philistines 
although it was shorter. For God said, if the people see war, they may change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people by the roundabout way, the detour through the wilderness or desert toward the Red Sea. See, there's another side message here. We ain't got time for it. But if you back off of bad circumstances, warfare, tough times, if you back off and whine, you can spend the rest of your life not, not missing heaven, but missing a fruitful, abundant life because you chickened out. You wouldn't face difficult. You ran. You changed churches. You changed your spouse. You changed the job. You ran from people. You're not going to face yourself. You're not going to face difficult times. And because they didn't want to face war, oh, they backed off and God says, okay, we ain't taking a short route. How about 40 years in the desert till all of you die? 20 years old above, you ain't going into the promised land. Only two guys got in, Joshua and Caleb. They were 85 years old. I got hope. I got hope. Yeah. And then everybody 20 and under. If you are afraid of conflict, if you can't take a tough time, you can go to heaven, but you won't live the fullness of your potential or what God has for you. We just read it. He said, I can't take them, get them. The, the length of your stay in the desert is going to be determined by your obedience and by your willingness to face an adversary. Believing God will back you up, will help you. Yeah. So you got to imagine how disorienting this was to Israel. You know, they're going to be the people of God. God's delivered them from their oppressors. So they know that deliverance in one day had to be beyond human expertise or human strength. They, they, they had to have a God helping them do this. Well, they have to cross a peninsula and there's a pillar in front of them. The text says it's a pillar of cloud by day and a fire by night. Pretty cool nightlight. And this is the ultimate navigation system. They're going to be led by God. So the pillar starts to move, but they immediately notice it's going the wrong way. The promised land is northeast and the pillar is heading south. So they think this pillar is directionally challenged. And the great question is, will people, will you and I follow God when we don't understand God? Gee, I'm perplexed. Yeah. So will they follow him? when following doesn't get them what it is they think they want? Will they persist? Will they stay faithful on this detour of God? Now, I raise this issue because all of us know about detours where you find ourselves where you do not want to be. It's part of the human condition. And one of God's most irritating qualities for a whole lot of us, including your speaker, is that God is never in a hurry. I am but he isn't. This is not a minor detour. In fact, Israel's going to spend 40 years, one generation on a detour. Should have been a couple of weeks, 40 years. You know, we stop a minute. We ought to, we can look around church and say, oh, there's a 40 year one. There's a four day one. Oh dear God, there's a 60 year one. They never learned anything. They've had one experience 60 years. They just never learned anything. Never matured, never grew up, never changed. So 40 years is a significant number in the Bible. It's usually a number related to testing. And if you know much about the Bible, you may have noticed that number crops up a lot in Scripture. For example, Isaac and Esau both got married when they were 40 years of age. 
Forty days marked the duration of the flood. Forty days marked the time Moses was up on Mount Sinai getting the Ten Commandments. Forty days was the period between when Jesus was resurrected from the dead and his ascension back to heaven. King David reigned 40 years. King Solomon reigned 40 years. So 40 is often used in the Bible, not in a literal way, but as kind of a round number to refer to a lengthy or significant period of time. So biblically speaking, I'm more or less 40 years old. (laughs) 40 is especially associated with the desert in the Bible. So when Moses kills a man, he runs into the Midian desert and he lives there 40 years. When Elijah is terrified by Queen Jezebel and he's running for his life, he runs into the wilderness and he's there for 40 days. Maybe most famously is Jesus. After he had been baptized, you'd think he's got a short path to his ministry and the throne of glory. And instead, there's a detour. He is driven, Mark's gospel says, an intense verb, like Jesus maybe didn't want to go. He's driven by the Holy Spirit into the desert. And he's there for 40 days, being alone, days of hunger and temptation. See, the desert is a place you don't want to be. You don't want to go. It's that place that's not flowing with milk and honey and great jobs and wonderful dates for you singles. It's a dry and barren place. Worse, you don't know how long you're going to be there. How long is 40? Are we there yet? I say this because sometimes people even churches, evade the reality of the detour. But listen, sweetheart, it will come. When your heart aches with hurt or loss and you don't know why, when you long for a good thing and maybe you have faith and it seems like God could give you that good thing if he wanted to, but he doesn't, sometimes the desert is triggered by some event. And a lot of people know about that. There's a child you love. They run away maybe either figuratively or literally, and you don't know if you'll ever get the child back again. Or there's a financial disaster, and some of you have experienced that. Or you lose your job, or you get a report from the doctor, and all of a sudden your world is turned upside down, and it'll never be the same for you. Or you have a dream, and you spend years looking forward to when that dream's going to come true, and then one day you realize not only has it not come true, it's not going to come true. And it kind of dies, and something inside of you kind of dies with it. Sometimes the desert comes for no discernible reason at all. Everybody has a story that very often we can't see on the outside. Everybody does. Because everybody, if you get close and intimate, they can tell you about the desert. See, I want to tell you when it comes, because it will, it doesn't mean God has forgotten you. It doesn't mean there's no God or that you've been abandoned. God is often at work in the detour of a desert in ways I don't see readily and I don't understand at the time. See, God's way is rarely the quickest, which it was, rarely the easiest, but the only alternative is to take a way of despair and possibly death. So I want to talk this weekend about how God's strength is made perfect in weakness about the detours about what it's possible to learn in the desert, if you're there or when you go, because oddly enough, it doesn't explain everything there is to know about the desert. But when people look back on their lives and they'll talk to you, oftentimes 
It's those dry places, the desert times, the detours, where they were more shaped by God than any other time. So let me give you some lessons from the desert. Lesson one, the desert is the place you learn patience. That one's for me, patience. You're not born with patience. You have to learn patience. Now, of course, all of us would like to have patience, but none of us want to go through the pain of having to learn it. Every day, the Israelites would wake up and there would be this pillar and they'd have to ask, am I going to follow today? If it just sits there, will I just sit here? Are we there yet? Maybe for you being single is the detour. Maybe for you, it's marriage. Maybe your marriage has become a desert experience. You had hopes and dreams and maybe they haven't come true. Will you patiently be obedient to God? Will you love your spouse, if you have a spouse, just a day at a time, even when it's not easy? When is it easy? Come on, please. Quit watching, participate with me. It's an old story, but I still love it. There's an elderly couple lying in bed. And the wife says to her husband, you know, when we were young, you used to hold my hand. Well, he grumbled a little bit, but he reaches over and grabs her hand. A few minutes later, she says, you know, honey, when we were young, you used to hold me when we were lying in bed. He grumbles a little bit more because it takes a little more effort now, but he rolls over, puts his arms around her and holds her. A couple of minutes later, she says, you know, honey, when we were young, you used to nibble on my ear. He throws the covers back and gets out of bed. And she says, Fred, where are you going? He says, I'm going to get my teeth. It, <laughs> it's one thing to nibble on the ear when you're young and in love, and that ear is lovely, and the air is filled with the scent of Chanel number no. five, and nibbling is easy. But it's another thing to nibble when that ear doesn't hear so well anymore and it contains a hearing device and the air is filled with the scent of Ben Gay and you have to go get your teeth first. It's hard. The desert is this place where we all go. Aging will do it if nothing else does. It's where I don't want to be, where I don't want to go. But where I can learn to be as patient with other people, maybe even as patient with my own life as my heavenly father is patient with me. Wonderful things can happen in this terrible place called the desert. Second thought, the desert is the place where God makes you strong. The desert is often the place God makes you strong. My strength, God said, is made perfect in your weakness. It's the old paradox of the kingdom of God. None of us want to be thought of as being weak. That's interesting in this story why God would lead his people on this detour. But God, I read it. He told us why. For God said, if the people face war, challenge, difficulty, the Philistines, they'll change their minds and want to go back into bondage, back to Egypt, and then their story's going to be over before it ever actually begins. See, the direct route, like I-10, back then, the Via Maris would take them past the Philistines, who are a hostile, warring people. And God was perfectly able of delivering them any number of ways, but they didn't believe that yet. They were too frightened. So 
God would lead them on the detour so that day by day, week by week, year by year, he could develop in them qualities of courage and faith and persistence that wasn't present in them at the moment. You know, it takes time. David killed a lion, then he killed a bear. And when he faced the biggest challenge of his life, a giant, he said, well, I've got experience. God helped me kill that bear. God killed the lion and God will help me take down this uncircumcised Philistine. He didn't get there in one trip. That was, he was keeping sheep in the desert, but he was learning some stuff, picking up some strength and courage and faith. So God is not nearly as concerned with where his people are going as he is with who they'll be when they get there. For 400 years, they've been slaves and all that culture and slavery was still in them. It's an old observation. We've, you hear it all the time. It took one night to get Israel out of Egypt. Uno, one night. It took 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel for them to view themselves as people loved and cared for by God. See, getting you to heaven, that's the easy part, but getting this world, the culture, the toxicity, the divisiveness, the prejudice, all that negativity out of you, ooh, that ain't no quick trip to the zippy mart. That's a long haul getting you to think different, right? And for some people, they never get there. They just stay locked in their culture, locked in their tradition, and never change. And they never, they never grow. So it's not so hard to trust in the land of milk and honey when everything's working out just nice, when your prayers are getting answered, your problems go away, your kids' teeth are straight, your bank account's up, your weight's down, your hair looks great, the dog's happy to see you when you come home. Faith is not so hard then, is it? But often when somebody first becomes a Christian, God will give them a kind of gift of great spiritual desire, great spiritual motivation. And you find yourself in those early days hungry to read the Bible because you don't know it, and you can't wait to worship. And in prayer, it feels like God is so close. Even old temptations don't look as appealing as they did. Then over time, something happens. And what was once easy and enjoyable in your spiritual life becomes more difficult. You pray, you try to pour your heart out to God, but it feels like your prayers don't even get past the ceiling. The Bible now kind of looks like a confusing or a troubling book to you, and temptations start to look really appealing to you, and you feel dry. And it's not just that you are in the desert, it's like the desert is in you. Maybe it's because you've been running after a sin, and what you need to do is confess that and stop, but sometimes it descends on people for no discernible reason. Folks who write about spiritual life have written about this, this, this uh, incredible thing that happens to everybody. There's a guy named St. John of the Cross, and he wrote and talked about what he called the dark night of the soul. God actually can be at work in you, in me, in this time. Now, I'll give you a little parable about it. My first bike was a red Schwinn. I got it on Christmas Day. And I wanted to learn to ride that bike like any kid would, more than anything. But it comes with training wheels because I never rode a bike. And one day, my dad took the training wheels off the bike. And I wasn't ready to ride solo. So my dad would run behind me with one hand on the bike. And I thought I was doing great. And then my dad or mom would do a strange thing. They'd let go of the bike. And eventually, I would fall. 
And every time I'd get up on it, I'd fall again. And I can tell you, I hated it. I didn't like it at all. So I asked my dad, why'd you let go? And my dad said, I let go, Ricky, because it's part of what you have to go through if you're ever going to learn to ride. I let go because if I don't, you're never going to know the joy of riding a bike. And anyway, you're 25 years old. Uh, you, you can figure it sooner or later, the day comes when it's time for somebody to let go. You know, wait a minute. Just think with me for a second. When God had Israel in the desert, he gave them shade, heat. He gave them food. They didn't have to buy anything. Gave them water. Their clothes never wore out. They always looked great. There was not one sick among them. You get a generation where you get your nappy changed and you get breastfed and you, get, you don't have a need, it'll ruin you. At some point, when they got into promised land, God said, okay, the free stuff is over. Now you got to plant seeds, cultivate the ground, dig the weeds out, harvest, or you starve. Now you have to organize and fight the battle. Now I'll be with you, but you're going to grow up. I'm not going to keep changing your diaper and giving you a pacifier every day. And that's where a lot of people are. They don't want to mature, but you only mature. I was watching X Games and the outtakes from some of the greatest in the world who, who make it look so easy, but it was showing them years before teenagers learning. It was awful. They broke bones. They had surgeries. They were in the hospital, and it showed their horrible crashes. But that was the way to greatness. They had to develop that skill. And if they didn't have the ability to face the possibility, I may fall, I may crash, then they'd never be great wearing a gold medal. How are you going to be great sitting on that soft chair in church? And I have to worry about not going over so you're comfortable. <laughs> have to be sure the air conditioner's just right. Don't want somebody to be upset. Got to be sure. You know, why? Because we're like people on the carnival cruise. How was the food? How's the temperature? Did you like the captain or the crew? Did you get what you needed? Were you comfortable, sweetheart? Was your room cleaned on time? Gag me. We're in the army of God. You get what's served. Suck it up. Toughen up, buttercup. This is not easy. God wants to make you tough, strong in the Lord, the power of his mind. And you're not going to get that if God does everything for you. He has to let go of that bicycle at some time where you pray for your health. You pray for the marriage. You pray for whatever is going on in the business world or your finances. You have to take charge. Now, he'll help you, but he wants you to stand up and initiate. A guy named C.S. Lewis wrote a wonderful book called The Screwtape Letters. And in it, he describes part of the human condition is just how we are made as embodied creatures. So we have peaks, times of great energy and joy, and we have troughs, times when we feel quite low. Good days, bad days. It's true physically, it's true emotionally, and it's true spiritually. I mean, do you always feel spiritual? Do you always feel great emotion? Praise the Lord. Every time I get out on a Christmas on the highway, I never said, praise God, this is wonderful. I may not get there before my next birthday. I, this is really good. Who taught that idiot how to drive? He didn't, you're in the fast lane, you, you snail. Get over. 
I just talked to them. Ask my wife. Patience, patience. Got to learn it. And it's true emotionally. We just don't, all of our days are not up and to the right like a nice graph. Be nice, but life doesn't work that way. See, it doesn't work. It won't for me, it won't for you. Now, he said this is how God works in us in times of spiritual dryness in our desert. He says, God leaves the creature, that's you and me, to stand up on its own legs, to carry out from its own will alone duties which are not fun anymore. And it's during such low periods, much more than during your peak periods, that you grow into the sort of creature he wants you to be. My strength is made perfect in weak. Let me, let me say something. I had uh, several years ago, you know how we get droughts in San Antonio in the summer. We can't buy rain. It's, you get a high pressure dome over us and you, you, everything turns brown. And, and you know, then your water rates go up unless you're on a well. And I'm throwing water at that yard every day. I'm pouring water, pouring water at that, at a yard to keep it fresh. And the, and the landscape guy said, hey, Rick, you have got to stop watering because you got weak grass. And I said, he said, if you don't stop for about three or four days and force it for the roots to go deeper, you, that, that yard will die on you faster than you can imagine because you've overwatered it. You've got to go through the pain of seeing it brown up a little bit to force those roots to go down for moisture so your yard becomes resilient and strong in times of a drought. Well, I thought, that's a good sermon right there. You're not going to change. You're not going to grow if you just have it easy all the time. So God will make sure you get a few detours in life. So don't think if you're on a detour, God forgot you. He's not judging you, penalizing you, that God doesn't care. Sometimes it's in those moments, maybe you've been looking for a relationship and it just hadn't been coming down. Or you're tempted to get in a relationship to help God out that you know probably be dishonoring to God. It's in those times when obedience simply comes from your will to say, God, no matter how long the detour goes, I'll follow you. I'll trust you. I'll obey you. I'll stay on the way. I don't like it, but I'll stay there. If it means 40 years, I'll endure 40 years. If it's the rest of my life, I'll follow you. I won't compromise my integrity or my character. The desert is a place where that happens in really deep ways, and God grows spiritually strong, resilient people. That's what makes people tough. I watch people, you know, social media isn't toxic. It's the people you follow that are toxic. Block them. Get that out of your brain and head. Hang around people going where you'd like to go or who have become what you'd like to become. I can't, I mean, people fall apart like a cheap sweater. Every time the news media comes, oh my God, we got a new variant. Oh dear God, this is that. And there's a new bug that's come into the country and it's going to eat up. And oh, I don't know. We got this. That's every day, every day. That'll destroy you. I don't care if it's a giant, a lion or a bear. You come to me. With your sword and spear, I come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I rebuke you. You're going to lose your head. No plague shall come near my dwelling. No weapon formed against me shall prosper. I am redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Blood bought, redeemed, justified, sanctified child of the Most High God. Get your filthy hands off me, off my wife, off my children, off our people. 
Get some Holy Ghost guts. Be strong in the Lord. I ain't got any powder puffs. Well, you're just so mean. I'm not mean. You better get, you better get toughened up somehow. You know, when we played, I was in a little bitty high school in South Carolina, a, an A school. Our coach would make us play these triple A teams who, who were like college professionals, and we'd just get the snot beat out of us. And he said, I'm going to make you tough, and I'm going to make you better by playing people so much better than you that you'll learn to adapt to that and get better. You can. You can. So, so quit parroting everything you see on social media or in the media and all. Stand on God's promise, not on CNN or Fox News. What does God say? Okay, I'm going to stand on that because it's immutable. And then principle number three, the desert is where I come face to face with my temptation and my sin. That's where you get gut honest. See, in the Bible, this often happens in a desert. Maybe most famously when Jesus goes into the desert and the evil one, Satan, comes and tempts him three times with great power. So the question is, will I be willing to look at the truth about myself and my temptations and my dark side? I don't know what the desert looks like for you when you come to the truth about what's inside of you. I know for every human being, that's an awful moment. The desert is the place where the ordinary gratifications of my life, image, reputation, your achievements, the people you can impress, the stuff you can try to do. The desert is a place those things aren't available anymore to distract you. And now I have to choose. Will I face the ugly truth about me or will I not? You know, let me, when you go to a recovery group for, for Alcoholics Anonymous or, or an addiction recovery, they can't even help you until they get in your face and you admit, I got a problem. I have a, I've been in denial. And as my friend uh, Chris Estes likes to say, denial is not a river in Egypt. <laughs> it's the truth about you. You know, my grandfather wasn't very theological, but he used to say, Ricky, if three people call you a jackass, go buy a saddle. Everybody's not wrong. You got a problem. You've been married four times and you're always there. You got a problem. Whether it's alcohol or drugs or sex or some addiction, it's not to beat you up. It's to say, God can't, can't fix you, can't help you if you can't admit, I really suck in this. My life is really bad here. That's, here's who I really am. See, and that's a good thing. So you can hide or you can come out of hiding and heal, but you can't do both. Now, I hope you don't hide. I know the desert can be a painful place and I hope you don't hide. I hope you get real with God and yourself and maybe another person. That's why we exist as a church. All we are is a remedial group in recovery, followers of Jesus on the detour. Are we there yet? Yeah. Ain't got a clue. How long is it going to take? I don't know. Longer than you wish, I can tell you that. You know, last lesson. This is a, a really nice one, a nice thought. And that's number four. The desert is the place you can learn to love God just because he's God and because he's so good and not because of the milk and honey he gives you. This is pretty. Now, when our children were small, we used to go sometimes to a restaurant. And in this restaurant, they had a machine. It was filled with toys and stuffed animals. You've seen it. Some of you may have seen it and tried it with me. You, you put in 50 cents and you move a crane around 
and you push a button to drop the jaws of the crane. And if they dropped exactly right and closed exactly right, oh, you'd get this great, fabulous, expensive toy. Our children love that machine. Our children would talk sweetly to that machine. Our children would give all the money they had to that machine. Anybody want to guess how many toys my kid ever got out of that machine? Never did they get a single toy. Over time, that child no longer loved that machine, no longer spoke sweetly to that machine, spoke in other words to that machine, and we had to deal with that a little bit later on. But desert times are those times when you get nothing you want. Not that promotion, not that house, not that relationship, not even the health, and you keep putting in 50 cents and it's not coming back. It's that moment in the desert I find out, do I love God for God? Will I love the life he gives me, this world he created, or do I love him only when I get the good stuff? Do I love life? Do I love other people? Only when I get the good stuff. Boy, the, de the desert will sort you out. The desert was intended by God not to be a place of punishment, but to be a place where Israel learned to live simply under God's love, like a child in the desert. You know, in the desert, they didn't have to build great cities. They had no great companies they had to start. They had no difficult battles they had to win. Just God and them. And the plan was he would feed them manna every morning as a gift. He would guide them every day, that pillar going before them as a gift. He would guard and protect them every night as a gift. See, there was way more at stake in this story than just what they knew. This was not about relocation primarily. This was not about just being slaves primarily. This was not about the land primarily. It wasn't even about the formation of a new nation because nations come and go and still do, and it doesn't change our world. But there was something a lot deeper going on. It was about a new way of being human under the care of God. There's a great scholar named Peter Berger, and he wrote that when Israel left Egypt, it was a break with the entire universe. And this is what he meant by it. He said, in the ancient world, in Egypt and other places, the universe was thought to be kind of a cold, chaotic place ruled by capricious gods and human beings. And human beings would go through rituals, offer sacrifices to give gifts, to try to be spared from chaos and to get the health or wealth they wanted. It was understood that's what life was about. Now this little group of ex-slaves comes on the scene and they're invited to an experiment of living under the care of the one true God, the creator of all that is, who in the desert would make a covenant of love with them, who in the desert would form them into a community where every person would experience dignity and care and love, who in the desert would give them the gift of the Ten Commandments, civil civilization, and would also give them the gift of direction that life could now be something noble, morally beautiful, and good, and who would create in them a community where the primary concern is the goodness and love of the creatures God made in his own image and over which he would be their father. So when you're in the desert, and you will be, don't you give up. Life is not about milk and honey. It's not about the land. It's not about the job. It's not about the house. It's not about the money. You are on a detour with God. It is in the desert, oddly enough, that we find the only hope worth having, and that's Christian hope, 
and Jesus is the hope of the world. I don't know why you're going through your desert or mine. I don't know. What I do know is that the Bible tells us when God came to earth in the form of Jesus, he didn't take the shortcut to the throne of power. He could have. He didn't take the I-10. He went by a detour through the desert. He humbled himself to become obedient and taking on the form of a servant, washed feet. His final walk to his death was from the temple to the cross through the winding road. And I've been on this in Jerusalem. It was a path of great suffering and hostility. He carried a cross on his back 650 yards up what is called the Via Dolorosa. And that's the way of sorrows, the way of suffering. That's our God. And we die with him through our surrender and our repentance. I don't understand all about this, but if you'll go with him on the detour, the way of the desert, the way of the cross, the way of surrender, the way of faith, Jesus said, you will surely know one day the triumph of the resurrection and glory and hope and life. You will surely know. Are we there yet? No, not yet. One day, not yet. Could be maybe a long time, probably will. It's okay. Be patient. It's coming. For more information on Summit Christian Center, visit summitsa.com.